All right. So yeah, we're in Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to flip there, we will have the scriptures on the screen, but it'll be helpful for you to be able to follow along with us. In week 7 of our gospel-centered family series. So why don't we stand together and we'll read the section of scripture. Ephesians 5, 15 through 24. I'll read it. You guys can follow along. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So Lord, as we navigate waters that uh, seem to have 20-foot swells, God. We pray the Spirit of God would empower the preaching and soften the hearts to receive today. We pray that everything we hear would be balanced before the Word of God to see if it's true, and everything of our own opinion or of our own worldly culture and worldview would be set before the Word of God to see if it's true. And Lord, that we would all submit before the authoritative word of God. Lord, we pray that in this series, you would just be working healing. Lord, that you would just patch up those old wounds and apply salve to hearts that have been hurt through the fallen condition in marriage. And Lord, we also pray that you would redeem what the enemy desired, desired for wickedness and you would restore what the locusts have eaten. Lord, we just pray that marriages and families would represent Jesus in this dark and dying world as you do that redemptive work. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, just this morning, I do what, what I like to do during uh, sort of topical sermons, although it's, it's exegeting the text this morning, but I just typed in a web browser the word wife to see what the latest news is for wives these days, and it's pretty encouraging. It really is. Uh, like, for instance, that Bill Cosby's sexual assault that's based on 13 years of accusations of extramarital activities resulted this week in a hung jury. And so his wife had a comment for the media being destructive in their reporting of it towards her husband, and yet the media defending themselves that uh, they were trying to just report uh, the facts of the accusations, and we all know the drama in all of that. And while the jury may be hung on this case, uh, the American public pretty much has made their decisions. And one way or another, even having accusations against uh, Dr. Heath, Heathcliff Huxtable, 
makes the ways that you watch that show a little bit different these days, doesn't it? We've got the Bill Cosby album on our, on our uh, iPods and listening to his comedy, you just know, man, you know what? Even Dr. Cosby, or Dr. Huxtable, I should say, was a sinner. He was a sinner. And so we understand that even in those families that have a very polished look and, and a great external appearance, that if Jesus hasn't done a work on the inside of the hearts of men and women, there will still be very dark death. Another headline said that in Visalia, California, a central California man who was married to two women at the same time has been arrested on suspicion of killing one of them and his other wife has been arrested in the same case, authorities said on Tuesday. Uh, and yet, as we read that, it's not a whole lot different than some of the characters that we read in Scripture who have that cancer of sin deep in their nature, as we studied a few weeks ago. And then one of my Hollywood heroes, Kirk Douglas, just an incredible actor and man in some really good westerns, not the least of which man from Snowy River, am I right? Woot, woot. Okay, you knew that was coming. But uh, there's a book that him and his wife Anne has, has written, Kirk and Anne is the book title, where Anne says she knew about all of his affairs. And the headline read, Juicy Details Behind a Decades-Old High-Profiled Hollywood Marriage. Married since 1954, their marriage was progressive, even in today's sense of the word, where their newly released book said that the wife, Anne, has willingly turned a blind eye uh, as she is 98 years old. She told the news, I told him I didn't want to hear from it outside of him, so he'd openly tell me if he had or was having a fling. And yet, years later, they're still married, and Kirk, who's now 100, says that his wife still fascinates me. And no wonder. Hey, just tell me if you're having an affair, and it's all good. That fascinates me. I'll stay married to that. Okay. <laughs> then in Los Angeles, the wife of an internationally known hairdresser and beauty company. Am I right, DJ? Uh, just kidding. He's an executive where his woman's lover has been arrested, connected with the, his death, as he was found beaten and stabbed to death at a Los Angeles home earlier this year. And then I was reminded of going through my notes when I taught the Marriage and Family series five years ago of Lois Goodman, who was a pro-tennis umpire. He had been, she had been in New York City for the week's U.S. Open, where she was to serve as a tennis line judge. The 70-year-old Goodman was met Tuesday with a felony arrest warrant from her hometown of Los Angeles, where police and prosecutors say she beat her 80-year-old husband to death with a coffee mug in April. And so I uh, checked in on that case to see what the latest was, and she has been acquitted and the case has been dropped. I'm sorry to bring it up again. The only thing is how many women out there haven't been tempted to just <laughs> take, take the world's best husband mug and just the side of the head, am I right? Which reminded me that Billy Graham's wife <laughs> in an interview was asked if she'd ever considered divorce where she said, divorce, no. Murder, yes. <laughs> and so those are some of the husbands that are just out there in mainstream media. And no doubt, 
There's some worse cases even in this room today. Sometimes I can certainly be one of them. And we've been looking at how do we deal with this, the fall and the sinful condition of man when this is what we are. This is what we are apart from Jesus. And so, sorry, but we have taken about five weeks and we've looked at different aspects of submission. Okay, uh, the fifth uh, week will be uh, next week. But we've looked at, uh, even today, uh, we've looked at the motivation behind submission and the justification of submission. Today we're going to look at the dignity of submission. And then in the next uh session, we'll look at how far does submission go? What's the extent of submission? Now, even in these, uh, gals don't feel picked on, okay? Because we're going to look at, and how does that jive with the husband and what his role is? In fact, today's message is really the dignity of submission and biblical headship and how those things fit together. Now, There are three general categories that describe many marriages. One is non-Christian feminism. Non-Christian feminism, where there's no distinction between the roles of a husband and a wife. These individuals live parallel lives, where they're legally married, but functionally they're single. He has his job, his friends, his interests, his bank accounts, his credit card, his finances, and this can lead to separate beds and even different master suites. In fact, I heard that one of the growing trends in architecture are two master suites so that couples can live essentially as roommates underneath the same roof. What holds these marriages together when they do stay together are most often their kids, if they have any, and then their various other interests that they may share at any given time, or the causes that they march for, or their social networks. And I would submit that these marriages are only hanging on by a thread as they're already living separate, parallel lives of convenience, when something they're holding on to that holds them together leaves them or falls through, most often those marriages end in divorce. Once they have no kids or any interests that are the same, they are ripe for divorce, and with that, most often, adultery. Then we have Christian egalitarianism. So Christians, uh, but in one certain uh, difference than Christian complementarianism. Uh, There's no distinction between the roles of husband and wife. They also live parallel lives. He's got his life, his job, his finances. She's got her life, her job, her finances. But often they, again, share some unifying, short-lived, fleeting elements like their kids or their hobbies or their church. But a problem is that God has designed and wants us to live as one, as he is one. Yet, uh, here there's a separated two-ness rather than a one-ness. As the kids grow up, their distance grows and those marriages get distant. 
Men often have their midlife crisis. Women go and try to find their own identity. When the children leave, so does the love and the glue. And so, so many of us have seen uh, or even have had parents who have gone through this, uh, especially when they become empty nesters. And many of you know it firsthand. A third kind of category is that Christian complementarianism, which kind of comes from the Genesis phrase, uh, someone who would compliment you uh, from uh, when God saw the deficiency in just creating man, Adam, with no Eve. Christian complementarianism is what I believe is the teaching from the Bible from beginning to end. That the world is governed by the sovereign God of the Bible. And he is a God who has lead, leads and sets things up in roles and in orders. That the husband and wife fulfill distinct roles. They live life as one together in equality and yet with different roles underneath that uh, equality. They live under God's authority with a unified purpose. You have husbands in Christian complementarianism that um, are loving and sacrificial in the way they lead the family. You have wives that respect and follow the leadership of her husband. And then you have children who lovingly obey both their mother and father and what holds them together is that they live lives as worshipers of God who is creator of marriage and has creator rights over what he has designed marriage to be we are worshipers in God's universe and we follow the plan of the bible no matter what it says or how it confronts our worldview or our culture around us C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, the Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and a wife are to be regarded as a single organism, for that is what the words one flesh would be in modern English. And the Christians believe that when he said this, he was not expressing a sentiment, but expressing or stating a fact. Just as one is stating a fact when one says that a lock and its key are one mechanism or that a violin and its bow are one musical instrument. And so that being said, it brings up the differences between a covenant versus a partnership. Swiss theologian uh, Karl Barth, who lived from 1886 to 1968, it's really pronounced Bart, but I don't want to offend anyone against the Simpsons here, so uh, it's just Karl Barth. Um, Karl Barth. He was a Swiss theologian uh, who has been known to be one of the most important thinkers of the 20th century. For what it's worth, even Pope Pius Twelfth described him as the most important theologian since Thomas Aquinas. Barth's influence expanded well beyond the academic realm to mainstream culture, leading him to be featured on the cover of Time magazine on April 20th, 1962. So a reformed theologian that even the Pope says, this guy's one of the most important theologians that we've ever seen. And here's what he has to say. Karl Barth. He says, Marriage is the encounter of male and female, 
in which the free, mutual, harmonious choice of love on the, on the part of a particular man and woman leads to a responsibly undertaken life union which is lasting, complete, and exclusive. Monogamous. So let me say that again. Marriage is the encounter of male and female in which the free, okay, so I want you to, to get these key words, free, mutual, goes both ways, harmonious choice of love on the part of a man or a woman leads to a responsively undertaken life union which is lasting, complete, and exclusive. Free, mutual, harmonious choice. I looked up some synonyms for that. Unrestricted, shared, synced. Thought you iPhone users would like that. It's a decision of love. Bart captures the spirit of a word in the Bible that's used repeatedly to speak of marriage, and that is covenant. Covenant. Proverbs and Malachi speak of marriage covenant. And throughout the Bible, you hear of covenant frequently. You hear of Noah and Abraham, and David and Jonathan making covenants together twice. We read of the new covenant, the better covenant, the eternal covenant, Jesus saying, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. Covenant. More than just the bad guys on Halo. Nobody? One guy. Okay, cool. We know. We know. Covenant is a complex term rich in meaning. Both inside the Bible and outside the Bible. Covenant is in reference to a man and a woman in marriage Speaking of a pledge or an agreement or a mutual obligation or a commitment that we have made. Covenant is used in a way that goes far beyond just commitment or obligation. In the Old Testament, you see a free, mutual, harmonious choice of love on the part of Yahweh to Israel. And in the New Testament, a free, mutual, harmonious choice of love on the part of Christ and the church. And we see as a picture of that the same thing between a husband and a wife. Covenant gives us a fully developed, biblically ripened view on marriage. It's been said a Christian marriage will be a covenant relationship rather than a partnership in the strictest sense of the word. Whereas partnership implies equality and sharing on every level. Whereas in covenant, man takes the initiative and assumes greater responsibility for maintaining relationship. And wife responds and assumes role of helpmate. 
There is sharing, but not on every single level and to the same degree. In covenant, we have that man is the breadwinner or the main source of income. Now, that can be taken in different ways. There are stay-at-home dads. Most often uh, in Christian circles, it's dads that are, uh, you know, they're, they're working from home. Wives also can have a job. That's not what I'm getting at here. But we're talking about man being the, the main source of income, listen to this, in a way that will determine the spiritual direction and orientation of the family. Okay, so he has a lead role in making sure that the income of the home furthers the mission and kingdom of God. Okay, he's the father of the family in this covenant. He assumes responsibilities in keeping this position. As the senior partner, he must be willing and able to sacrifice more than the wife. Okay, so welcome to the covenant, bros, all right? You get to be willing and able to sacrifice more than the wife. The wife within this covenant of marriage is the helpmate biblically and potentially the mother and may have an outside job, but her work does not determine the spiritual direction and orientation of the family. If you know my family at all, you know that uh, my wife is very talented, very skilled. She's a CPA and she works outside of home. And you know that I'm like a stay at home dad half the time. Okay. She goes in at 6 a.m. and works from 6 to 1 on non-tax season days. I watch the kids work from home while I'm watching the kids. And then as she get home, gets home, I go to work. Okay. So uh, that's a little bit of our roles. But within those roles and within being the breadwinner or being the main source of income and in all of it, we're prayerful and fasting about how is our job and how is your job best advancing the kingdom of God and setting a spiritual climate for discipleship within our home and community. Covenant relationship doesn't mean that a couple will share the same interests or hobbies. It does mean that they will share the same faith. Interests and hobbies secondary to having the same God over their home. It does mean that they will share the same faith, the same basic concerns, since their covenant has come from Jesus Christ himself and his relationship to his bride, the church. Covenant relationship doesn't mean that the husband is master in every area. It does mean both are servants to one another and to God. Covenant is not to be confused with the patriarchal relationship with, which characterized the Victorian age. A husband is not a dictator but is a provider, a leader, a lover. The wife is not a slave, but is a loving companion and overseer of the home, as Titus chapter 2 says. That the older women, likewise, down in verse 4, admonish young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, ready to get offended, obedient to their own husbands. You can blame Paul and the Holy Spirit for that one. 
that the word of God may not be blasphemed. The modern concept is that a marital relationship is based on common interests and values. We've all seen it. We've all been a part of those marriages. We've all got family members that have those types of modern concepts of marriage. But a biblical concept is that it is a marital relationship that is based on and founded on a common faith, mutual respect, and a self-giving love. These ideas pulsate through the book of Ephesians at Paul's hand. Now again, to quote Bart. Marriage is the encounter of male and female in which the free, mutual, harmonious choice of love on the part of a particular man or woman leads to a responsibly undertaken life union which is lasting, complete, and exclusive. Our friend Art Azurdius says, it is a covenant relationship in which both partners under the lordship of Jesus, are mutually devoted to serving each other. Yet clearly they have bearing their own, or are rather, bearing their own distinct responsibilities. I like that. They are mutually devoted to serving each other. I kind of want to use the word out in there. Out serving each other. Bearing, and yet each bearing their own distinct responsibilities. And so there is a covenant between husband and wife. In one, I make a covenant to lovingly lead. In the other, I make a covenant to lovingly submit. As John Piper wrote, one of Paul's points in this passage is that the roles of husband and wife in marriage are not arbitrarily assigned and they are not reversible without obscuring God's purpose for marriage. The roles of husband and wife are rooted in the distinctive roles of Christ and his church. God means by marriage to say something about his son and the church by the way husbands and wives relate to each other. God's trying to say something in the way he's designed marriage. He's trying to preach the gospel in the marriage covenant. And so we don't get to just pick and choose how we want to do things. This isn't some arbitrary, accidental, you know, afterthought of God. It's designed with purpose, clear back in creation, in this union between man and wife. For, for, uh, for as long as they shall live. I don't want to say eternity because... All right. We all know that death do us part. Okay. Now this has been distorted at the fall. In this series, we have looked at the fallen condition. We looked at the glorious creation and the horrible fall in Genesis 1 through 3 when sin entered the world and ruined the harmony of marriage. It, it made us out of tune. Now, it's not because it brought headship and submission into existence. The fall didn't do that. What the fall did was that it twisted man's humble, loving headship into a hostile, dangerous domination in some men, but equally bad in other men, is that the fall brought lazy indifference. And then for the gals, it twisted women's intelligent, willing submission into manipulative compliance in some women 
and then brazen insubordination in others. You've got these two extremes of how both men and women have fallen in headship and submission. Sin isn't what created headship and submission. Our sovereign, holy God did. Sin ruined those roles and distorted them and made them ugly and destructive. And so God has worked to redeem headship and submission. He's not trying to dismantle in Ephesians 5 the original design, but he wants to recover the original design. Where he says to wives, let your fallen submission be redeemed by modeling it after God's intention for the church. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, wants to redeem submission for you women. And he wants to redeem headship for men by having you model it after God's intention for Christ. And so as we've been learning the last five weeks, headship isn't a right that men get to command and control. Rather, it's a responsibility to love like Jesus. Husbands get to lay down their life for their wife in servant leadership. And submission isn't slavish for women. It's not cowering. That's not the way that Christ wants the church to respond to his leadership. He wants the church to be free and willing and glad to respond to his love and sacrifice. That type of submission is refining and strengthening. What our passage today in Ephesians chapter 5 does not do, or rather does, I should say, is two things. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, guards against abuses of headship by telling husbands to love like Jesus. It guards against debasing submission by telling wives to respond the way that the church does to Jesus. And so headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protecting and providing for the home. Okay, that's what headship is, men. Submission is a divine calling for wives to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. We asked the question about three weeks ago, what determines if a marriage is a Christian marriage? And we concluded it's a Christian marriage if it has a broad submission to a spare nothing unto death kind of love. Because that's what represents Christ and the church. A broad submission to a spare nothing unto death kind of love. We've been seeing what it means for Christian wives in particular these last few weeks. How does a Christian wife respond to the romance of her husband? It's a voluntary yielding of herself to the love of her husband. Ephesians 5.22, wives, the language speaks of 
voluntarily submit to your own husband as to the Lord. The first word is wives. It's addressed to the wives. It's not the right of the husband to see to it that his wife submits. This isn't directed to husbands. It's directed to wives. It's a word from the Lord to you, not from the husband to the wife. Praise God. Because <laughs> we have blown that one. It's a charge from God to the wife for her to voluntarily submit as a fully free, responsible human being with value and worth. Paul implies that she has an inherent equality to her husband, yet she voluntarily gets to lay down rights for a greater good. The metaphor in the 60s and 70s was, she's a bra burner. And that was a a revolutionary concept back then. But this is way more revolutionary. It's way more astounding. Voluntarily lay down your rights. Because that's what the God of the universe did for us. Last week, or the last time we came together for this series, we looked at there's a unique motivation behind this. That it's as to the Lord. That's gospel, you guys. That's motivation. Her voluntary yielding to her husband will display that she is voluntary yielding to her Lord Jesus and that she has Christian integrity. There was never our point that a woman should become experienced and competent at the art of being a wife as though the main issue at hand in a family is that she masters certain domestic techniques and gimmicks and subtle manipulations and that she has to, in a sense, at the end of the day, become some sort of uh, summa cum laude with a degree in home economics. <laughs> that's not what Paul's getting at. By the way, that's the exact uh, degree that my mom had in, at Oregon State was uh, summa cum laude with a degree in home economics. But that's not what Paul is getting at. She did great, by the way. The issue is way less complicated. It's so much more easy in a very real sense. The issue isn't mastering all kinds of domestic stuff. Paul tells us in Ephesians, the issue is wives, be godly, be devoted, fear God, express your Christianity by submitting to your husband. It's what's overlooked by so many books that call themselves Christians that deal with the family. Those books reduce things to schemes. One man said they're reduced to schemes, thingamajigs, relating to the craft of wife being. But the point of Paul in Ephesians through the Holy Spirit's inspiration is that a good Christian cannot be a bad wife. A good Christian cannot be a bad wife. Verse 21 tells us we are to submit to one another in the fear of God. And yet there's also a very distinct role in verse 22. In all of that, wives are still to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. This is from design and it brings wonderful dignity 
For the sake of time, I've got to hopscotch a few things here. It's good for you, trust me. There's headship. Submission implies headship. And one common objection in our culture to the pattern of leadership and submission is that head does not carry the meaning of leadership at all. Instead, it just means source, kind of like fountainhead or the head of a river. But there are long studies to show that biblical headship is much more of a leadership interpretation. You'll never read these articles because they're too technical, so we'll break it down in a way that's very simple for us to see. The husband in Ephesians, as in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, is a leader and a head. He's pictured as the head of his wife, as Christ is pictured as the head of the church, the church being his body. Now, if head simply means source, then what is the husband the source of? Well, what does the body get from the head? It gets nourishment. That's actually mentioned in verse 29 of Ephesians chapter 5. We can understand that because the mouth is in the head and nourishment comes through the mouth to the body. But nourishment isn't all that the body gets from the head. It gets guidance because the eyes are in the head. It gets alertness and protection. In other words, if the husband as head is one flesh with his wife, his body, and is, he is therefore her source of guidance and food and alertness, then the natural conclusion is that the head, the husband, has a primary responsibility for leadership and provision and protection. So even if you give head the meaning of source, the most natural interpretation of verses regarding biblical headship are that husbands are called by God to take a primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership and protection and provision in the home. And wives are called to honor and affirm the husband's leadership and help carry it through with her gifts. Now, the text goes on, as it says in verse 24, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, the word therefore in verse 24 is actually better translated, but, but just as the church is subject to Christ. So uh, we have this wonderful picture of the gospel where Jesus is the savior. Husbands are never called to be, you know, they're not the savior. Jesus is the savior. But there's a response to that type of self-sacrificial headship. Functional headship is to be exercised within the context of a sacrificial, spare-nothing-unto-death kind of love. It is a savior kind of love. Other loves seek and enjoy a surrender of the woman, but our example 
for his bride surrendered himself. That's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. That the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to rather serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That makes submission something that is so dignified because it shows that the woman, the wife, is prized by her husband. He will spare nothing to the point of death to seek and secure her good even at his own personal expense. That kind of throws a wrench in most American headship ideas as men. Because most men say, I'm the head, so I get to have the final say. I have the final vote. My way goes. Anybody convicted there? Not me. Sure, just you. But that's not what headship speaks of in the New Testament. There's a well-known couple speaker that calls this passage the chain of command, which would in a sense mean I outrank you so I get to make the final decision. When real biblical headship says, I love you, so I have to make the best decision for your benefit. I'm driven by the priority of self-sacrificial love that I have for you over myself. Hopefully you're getting that, guys, because biblical headship doesn't say, I get my way. What it does say is, whatever I choose, it has to be driven by your best interests. Best interests that will lead to your physical well-being, your safety, your provision, your health, but most importantly, your spiritual maturity, wife, and your life of worship towards your creator. There's a subtle meaning that we need to appreciate in Ephesians chapter 5. And men, listen up. Paul doesn't say, be the head. He says, you are the head. You are the head. And so it's time to function as the head in the same way Jesus functioned by loving his bride at tremendous cost to himself. Who gets to make the final call? If that's even a question, you're apart from Ephesians chapter 5. It's the wrong question to ask. The question is, I am in every way absorbed with what's best for her. Every decision I make is in relationship to serving her. That's the covenant of marriage. That's the role of husbands. And a wife gets to lovingly submit to that kind of love. Wives, you've got your imperative of submit to your husbands. And as we're going to see in weeks to come, husbands have their imperative, which is, is equally a tall order. Die to self and lay down your life for your wife. It's time to step up, guys. Because just as much as the fall brought to men tyrannical dictatorship that is dangerous, the fall also brought lazy passivity. Where guys sit on the couch and wives are almost forced to lead the home. The imperatives of Ephesians are to step up. You are the head. You're failing to lead. You're failing to lead. 
I'm going to close out with uh, a quote, and if uh, you guys want to come on up, get the little guitars tuned, that'd be great. Uh, we quoted George Marshall, who was uh, the, the chaplain to the United States Senate years ago. Well, I found this incredible quote from his wife uh, back in the 1930s, a gal named Catherine Wood, then she would become Marshall. Uh, some of you may know her as the author of the best-selling, no- uh, best-selling novel, Christie. Remember Christie? My mom was really into Christie. I think it was a movie, too. Uh, but she was the wife of our, our late chaplain of the United States Senate. She was asked by her future uh, uh, husband to speak a few words to a rowdy group of young men and women. And though this was spoken 82 years ago and she was only 20 years old, here's what she said. I never thought much about being a girl until two years ago when I learned from a man what a wonderful thing it is to be a woman. Until that Sunday morning, I considered myself lucky to be living in the 20th century, the century of progress and emancipation, the century when supposedly we women came into our own. But I'd forgotten that the emancipation of a woman really began with Christianity, uh, with Christianity when a girl, a very young girl, received the greatest honor in history. She was chosen to be the mother of the Savior of the world. And when her son grew up and began to teach his way of life, he ushered women into a new place in human relations. He accorded her a dignity she'd never known before and crowned her with such glory that down through the ages, she was revered, protected, and loved. Men wanted to think of her as different from themselves, better, made of more fine, more delicate clay. It remained for the 20th century, the century of progress, to pull her down from her throne. She wanted equality. For 1900 years, she'd not been equal. She'd been superior. To stand equal with men, naturally, she had to step down. Now, being equal with men, she's won all their rights and privileges. The right to get drunk, the right to swear, the right to smoke, the right to work like a man, to think like a man, to act like a man. We've won all this. But how can we feel so triumphant when men no longer feel as romantic about us as they did about our grandmothers? When we've lost something sweet and mysterious, something as hard to describe as the haunting, wistful fragrance of violets. Of course, these aren't my original thoughts. They're the thoughts I heard that Sunday morning. But from them, some thoughts of my own were born, and the conclusion reached that somewhere along the line, we women got off the track. And so all that to be said, the gospel, whether you're reading it from a Genesis standpoint, to a Malachi standpoint, to a Jesus in the gospel standpoint, to a Paul, to the European Ephesians, the gospel always will elevate women. And to this day, where the gospel goes, women are brought out of captivity and they are elevated to be seen as so highly valuable and to be cherished. That does not negate or contradict in any way the wonderful, dignified role of headship and submission 
that is modeled for us and motivated for us in the story of Jesus and the church. Headship and submission brings dignity to submission as there's biblical headship going on. Now, we know that there's not always biblical headship going on. And so wives, that's why you need to be filled with the Spirit so that you can do what you're called to do. Men, we know there's not always biblical submission and respect going on. That's why you need to be filled with the Spirit so that you can do what you're called to do. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to close with a special song and a worship song in whichever order you feel is right. And, uh, and then we're going to uh, be closed out with a special prayer from Aaron and Stephanie. So, uh, Lord, we just pray you would press this into us. Lord, this is, uh, this is, it's not new because if it's new, it's not true. But Lord, it's coming back to the, the, the theme of scripture, of the gospel. And we pray that we would take our families, our homes, our marriages, our parenting, and even as Paul will even go into our employee-employer business relationships, Lord, that we would come and bow them before the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb where there is mercy and grace and love and power for us today. Press that into us, Lord, even as we hear these special songs. In Jesus' name, amen.